0: Landing the plane on love and money, where we've been so far, really what we want to do in this series is not create a pathway for you to give an offering. We want to create a pathway where God can evaluate what's going on in our heart. So we talked about money is one of the great indicators of what we worship and what we love. We talked about in the second week how we have been blessed or given financial resources in order to be a blessing in the world that we live in. We talked about last week that there are principles that the Bible allows for us to read and interpret and install into our life that don't guarantee financial success. They don't guarantee prosperity and wealth, but but we want to be people who are governed by principles, not just driven by the daily circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so if you apply biblical principles to your life, they will help you in the long term. That's what we talked about last week. And this week, what I want to make the argument for is that God cares a great deal about us investing in the future. He cares a great deal about us investing in the future. And so as we get ready to jump into that thought, I'd I'd love if you could maybe just even close your eyes for just a moment all in this room. And this is the moment where the ushers are going to come. They're going to grab everyone's purses to really make sure the offering (laughs) looks right this week. That's a joke if you're new. We don't do that. We're not that weird. We're close, but we're not quite there. No, no. I just If you could imagine like your dream future, if you just imagine what you're doing maybe in retirement or maybe you're in retirement and you could dream about what you thought you'd be doing in this time of your life. Like what's the kind of food you're eating? What's the kind of places you're going? The vacations you're taking? Who are the people that you're with? What does your house look like? What's the, what's the number that's in your bank account, with that number that you've always aspired to have and your investments and your 401ks and everything like that? What's that dream version of your life? Right, so you open your eyes for a sec. I like, guess it's nice to think about, isn't it? Like, I don't know where y'all were out. Like, I was, I was on a beach, and it was comfy. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I was in a cabin, and there was, there was no cell phone service anywhere to be found. Like, those are kind of some of my happy places I go to. I don't know what your dream is like, but I was reading an article recently about investing and and saving for retirement. And one of the arguments this article was making is that the first $100,000 is the hardest number to save to. And I found it really interesting that the, the more you can scrap and, and do what you can, work extra shifts, whatever you can do to save up to that $100,000 mark, that seems to be a defining mark for you because once you hit 100K, it's no longer as much determined by your rhythms and your diligence to save, but compound interest actually begins to do a lot of the work for you. And so the earlier you hit that mark, the more wealth building you're going to have throughout your whole entire life. I bring that up really just anecdotally, but I think for young people, it is a good thing for you to be aware of that if you have a net worth of zero right now at 20 years old, you're actually doing awesome. You haven't buried yourself yet in some kind of debt. You haven't taken out these student loans. Like to be in that kind of spot actually tees you up really well to be the 60 year old that you maybe just had your eyes closed dreaming about. And I bring all that up to say, man, when I think about investing in the future, and I think about dreaming about what tomorrow will be like, and I think about accumulating and amassing like a wealth or a legacy, if you will, I think about King Solomon. You guys familiar with King Solomon in your Bible? If you're not, he's an Old Testament king. He's the son of King David. Son of King David, he, he grows up in the palace, he has all these luxuries and all these things handed to him, and really Solomon, known as one of the wisest, most prolific, amazing leaders that we read about in the Old Testament, until, you know, like every Old Testament king that you read about, you get to the chapter eventually where it says, and Solomon departed from the Lord, and then it's like, you know, I've been in First Kings recently in my own personal reading time, and it's all very exciting reading about Solomon, and then you see that chapter heading coming, and you're like, well that was fun you know <laughs> like it's all going to come crashing down here in just a moment but solomon what i love about the story of solomon is he's he's knowing that he's going to become king he's seeking the lord and what is it some of you you know the story what is it that he prays for it's kind of like counterintuitive say it aloud wisdom. wisdom right he he doesn't hey youth youth are coming back in the room can we just welcome here real quick hey how do we, Youth, just thumbs up, thumbs down. How we do? Is there a lot of food out there? We did good? Yeah, awesome. Praise God. First service, we just completely buried the elementary schoolers in food. It was amazing. So hopefully that's the case this service too. Um, Solomon prays for wisdom. And God says, because you prayed for wisdom, I'm going to grant to you riches and and influence as well. And don't we kind of read that and we sort of think of our own little cheat code with God? You know what I mean? We think we can game the system a little bit and we're like, God, I just really, in humility, I just want more wisdom. You know, really asking that, would, it was, when you grant me wisdom, would you also grant me the, witch, the riches and all the other things that come alongside it as well, like Solomon had, you know? I, I just think it's the funniest story because Solomon, this uh, quick little tangent, okay, but it's worth it. The, Solomon, he prays for wisdom, God grants him wisdom, and then there's this scenario that comes to King Solomon. You guys maybe know the story, maybe you don't. It's just so funny that it's in your Bible, but there's two prostitutes that come to him that are arguing over whether this baby belongs to one or the other. And, and they bring this case into the king's court, into Solomon's house, apparently, you know, and they're like, one of, the, one of the girls is like, this baby belongs to me. And the other one's like, no, she belongs to me. They're fighting. They're arguing about it. And Solomon, in all of his wisdom, right, he's like, all right, here's what we're going to do, girls. Uh, we're going to saw this baby in half and you'll each get a half. And that way, this will be better. And the one, the one lady is like, fine, do that. That sounds fair. The other lady's like, oh my gosh, no, don't kill my baby. You know, and Solomon's like, that's the mom right there. <laughs> and and I, like, listen, I'm, I'm humble enough to admit this, but I just like, that doesn't scream heavenly wisdom to me. <laughs> does it to you? No, but it says like in the later part of that chapter that all of Israel marveled at the wisdom of Solomon. I'm like, man, it just must've been easier to be a leader back then. But <laughs> incredible. Solomon really does really well. He, I mean, here's, here's the tension that we're going to have to live into when we read about King Solomon. And he, has, he has more money, influence, relationships. He has more of it than any of us in this room could ever possibly fathom. More than he could possibly fathom. It says this in First Kings chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. And in that little statement there really gives us a picture of the health of the nation of Israel. We know even today that as nations prosper, as they flourish and thrive, the birth rates in that nation will go up and declining birth rates in a nation are indicative that people are losing hope, they're losing faith, they're not trusting that this is going anywhere good that they want to bring kids into this world. Not not the case for Israel right now. Under King Solomon's reign, under his lordship, man, everyone's pumped, everyone's psyched. Kids coming out of everywhere. They ate and drank and they were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. So, his 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 area is increasing. His territory is increasing. The people are doing well. There's no hungry people among them. Israel is flourishing. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And it says later in verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. I mean, there's stories of other queens and kings coming to hear the, the wisdom of Solomon. By, by all human measure, we look at what's happening in his life. And everything is up and to the right. The money is all there. The wisdom is all there. He's, he's got everything going for him. And I bring this up out of 1 Kings really to show you then his conclusion of what that feels like that he draws in the book of Ecclesiastes. So in Ecclesiastes, you might not be familiar with this book, but it's, it's considered some of the wisdom literature in your Bible. And, and in it, the teacher, King Solomon, is really writing and documenting all of these things that he's learned in his pursuit and his gathering of wisdom. And it says, it says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was, what's that word? Vanity. Maybe your version, the way you've read it before, meaningless. The, the like, tagline that, that prevails throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is, meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly Meaningless oh, that's a real bummer, isn't it? Here we're reading about this guy who's acquired everything. I mean, he's tried, like, I want to keep it PG in church, but he's tried, he's tried everything relationally that he can with women. He's tried everything that he can am- am- amass and everything that he can do influence-wise. He's the king. Everyone's looking up to him. Everyone's wondering what Solomon thinks about something. He has more influence and reign than any other king up until this point. And he has more money than you and I could ever even fathom. Like it says in the book of Kings that he had to plant, he had to, he had to dig out, lakes to water his forests. I don't know what kind of real estate development plans are in your future with northern Colorado, uh, but you're certainly not, you're not hewing out huge sections of land to dig a hole to water your forest that you just planted. Nobody in this room is balling like that. Am I right? If you are, let's, let's talk after service. I'd love to get to know your name. Um, that's a joke. These are the jokes, people, okay? Solomon has more money, power, influence, relationship than we can ever imagine. And what does he say? It's meaningless, meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. Now, when you first read that word in the English, the reason it's vanity in some languages, or in some translations, and it's meaningless in other translations, is because the Hebrew word doesn't port over perfectly to English. The Hebrew word is the word hevel. Hevel. H-E-V-E-L. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. And the word hevel is probably better understood as like a mist or a vapor. And the word picture that we're meant to see in our mind's eye is like a a puff of smoke or something that you you can see it and it looks like it's really there. But if you go to put your hand on it, it disappears quicker than you can lay, lay hold to it. It's more, it's like it's an enigma more than it is just meaningless. When I read the word meaningless or vanity, what I think of is that it's, it's worthless. Solomon is not saying that life is worthless or without meaning. What he's saying is you can't possibly grasp that which you desire to take a hold of. So when it comes to money, when it comes to power, when it comes to influence, you will always be convinced you're right there ready to take hold of it. And just that next pay raise, that next measure of influence in my life, that next relationship breakthrough, that is what's going to finally solve my problems, only to find out that it's Hevel. I can't, I can't grab it. There is no end in sight in that game. It will just keep going. Hevel, Hevel, everything under the sun is utterly Hevel. Solomon's conclusion here is unfortunate for us because you and I will never know that kind of resource to be able to test that truth. So we have to, with some measure of faith, just believe him that he, he put together more of it than we'll ever have, that we could ever possibly have, and he still has the same conclusion, that apart from the fear of the Lord and following after his commandments, everything is meaningless, and we have to believe him. But here's what I'll say, your, your heart already knows that that's true you are farther along now than you ever thought you would be. And yet you are, you are not where your heart desires to be in some ways. Like I, I I am, I have more money than 18 year old Austin ever thought I would have. And yet I still feel like there's more that I could have. I'm always in this dance of not having enough and not being where I used to be. And so where does that leave me? Chasing after the wind is what Solomon would say. You're running after something that you can't catch. It's the old C.S. Lewis quote, uh, quote, the famous author who wrote The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, that if I find for myself desires in this world that nothing else in this world can satisfy, if I find for myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, my only right conclusion is that I belong to another world. God has put eternity into your heart for a reason, and the more you chase after temporary things, you're never going to catch it. And it's not just bad enough that this is an eternal reality that every human being everywhere is aware of on some soul level, but also the world we live in today is completely bent around that not being true. The whole ecosystem that you and I are a part of in America today is totally reliant on us grasping and chasing and playing the game, running after the things. That's how the whole machine works, isn't it? Let me give you just a few examples. You and I live in the age of planned obsolescence. Do you know what that is? That means your iPhone, what do you you have, like the 28 now or whatever it's on, right? And I have it too. It's it's right there on the front row. I'm not judging anyone, okay? I'm just saying in two years, that thing's going to be obsolete. And that's a plan, according to the makers and the shapers of the economy that we live in today. That phone, even though it should and can work for another 10 years, it's only going to work for about another two. And then by then, I'm going to need to buy another one. Why is that? Well, because that's, if we make products with shorter life cycles, then we just have to keep buying more things. It keeps us dependent. It keeps us hooked. I mean, you've probably heard some older person around you say, well, they just don't make things like they used to. That is correct. And that is a strategy. That's on purpose. It's intentional. There's a reason light bulbs only last as long as they do. They want you to keep coming back to buy more things. It's planned obsolescence. Y'all remember like the Nokia 1800 or whatever that phone was, right? You all had it. It was my first phone. That brick of a phone. Some of you millennials, where are my millennials at? It was like your first cell phone, right? And it was like this big, weighed four pounds. And the battery after you charged it up, how long? It lasted like two weeks. You know what I'm saying? I guarantee you that's in my it's a drawer in my parents' house somewhere. And if I were to pull it out and plug it in today, it would still work. Still play snake on that thing today if I wanted to, you know? What was like the texting where you had to push the number, like you had to push two, three times to get a C? When I first started dating Katie and I'm trying to send her text messages and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the most exhausting thing I've ever done. It was worth it because I loved her, right? <laughs> yeah. Those of these phones, like, they, they didn't make that phone thinking that technology was gonna just continually speed up, continually innovate in a way where it's like we replace things so frequently now because there is a plan to things becoming obsolete. That's the market that we live in as consumers. It's not just that, but we also live in an age where, where financing is now more readily available than ever before. So you can almost with anything you want to get it with no money down with deferring it, like whatever. Like there's all these financing different options to where even like your cell phone. Now, you probably don't own your cell phone. You probably just lease it from the, from the company that you're, that you're buying it from. Like they're just probably giving that phone to you in installments of $26 a month so that you can always have the next one. I mean, be that with cars where there's all these crazy financing options. Be that with your house. And yes, some of those are absolutely necessary, but some of them are absolutely not necessary. And they're just trying to convince you that you can buy more than you can actually afford. And the financing is a game to commit you to overcommit to what you can't actually spend. And so we have this financing world that we live in. But we also have, uh, like, the way that we advertise has completely changed. How many of y'all, you remember the days where you woke up, praise his name, you woke up Saturday morning just ready to watch some cartoons, because that's when you watched cartoons. Yeah, the good old days, right? I'm watching, like, SpongeBob SquarePants, me eight years old. I'm, don't email me about that, okay? I was eight. but And... Watching SpongeBob Saturday morning. That was the best, right? You maybe hustled through all your chores to plop yourself down in front of your TV with your gigantic vat of Lucky Charms or whatever, and then you were just gonna have a good time. And what did you have to watch like every four minutes? Commercials. My kids don't even know about commercials. You know what I'm saying? They just think that like as you stream something, it just ends and then it's like, oh my gosh, the next one's starting already. Here we go. Bluey will just go on forever. <laughs> you know? And back, I'm bringing this up for a reason, back when we did advertising in a national way, where it was a lot of just broadcast television, ads were based on pleasing the most or satisfying the most or appealing to the psychology of the group rather than the individual. So the only way you had to advertise your product to other people, to the world that we lived in, was by making blanket advertisements that went out to the world. Now that is not how you are advertised to. You are advertised to specifically Based on your patterns of behavior, y'all, y'all have had this happen to you, haven't you? Where you, you've had a conversation with somebody. Hey, I think, we're, I think it's just time for a vacation. Like, we're just due. Like it's not, we, I just want to get out of town and go somewhere. Somewhere sunny. I don't know. Cancun. This is somewhere cheap. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You jump on Facebook, and lo and behold, there's an ad for what? Flights, a car, a place to stay, all in Cancun, where you were just talking about. Have you had that happen to you? It's freaky, right? Or you were on Instagram and all of a sudden you lingered on one product one time because you were halfway interested, you read the caption, but because that video played three times in the background, the algorithm now thinks that you are interested in this product. And so now you're going to see advertisements for that thing and a million other things just like it over and over and over again until we die. (laughs) Hear me though, advertising and marketing is not just general communicated to everyone. Now it's specific and it's predatory based on your behavior. And if you encounter products, if you encounter things in a vulnerable spot, which a lot of us, if we're honest, when we're on social media, mindlessly scrolling, it's because we're feeling lonely. It's because we're feeling anxious. It's because we're trying to escape from the world we're living in today. And marketing is hitting us in those moments so that it would continue perpetuating those things inside of you so that you would continue trying to escape from the world you live in by buying, buying the products that they are selling. So there's been this whole shift in advertisement to the point now where you, this year, will see more advertisements in one year than people 50 years ago saw in their entire lifetime. That's a fact, by the way. And you believe it, don't you? Nonstop, constant attention. Your attention is for sale all the time, so advertising has changed. All of this is seeking to push us, seeking to form us into a way where we are just endlessly chasing after the wind. Hevel. Hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly Hevel. Why? Because we're so convinced in this world and for forever that if we just had this, fill in the blank, finally our life would be fixed, solved, or at least better than it was yesterday. And Solomon's just trying to point out to us today, that's not not it. That's not the solution. And so what are the solutions? What are things that we can do so that we can live our life in a way where we're governed more by the kingdom and not just, like Paul would say, we're not just conformed into the patterns of this world. I don't want to be just conformed into an American consumer. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind to follow after and to seek first the kingdom of God, like we talked about in week one, Matthew chapter six. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. I want to set my mind, set my attention, my devotion onto the kingdom of God. But gosh, isn't it tough in the world we're living in today with this constant pull towards the American dream, the American consumeristic model, the material world we're living in. That is where the pull keeps going. And so what do we do? How do we stand? And you're probably convinced at this point in the sermon that this isn't actually about you. This is about that rich person that you know. But when I asked you to close your eyes and dream about the future that you were living in one day, how much of that dream of the future revolved around the kingdom and how much of it revolved around you? See, and the only reason I can say that is because it convicted me before it ever convicted you. So much of our dreams, so much of our ideas of who we want to be and where we want to go and what we want to do in the future is based on us, me, my world, my wants, my desires. It's not necessarily rooted in the kingdom. And so now this sermon's exactly for every single one of us in this room. What do we do? The first thing, the invitation really in all of Scripture is to repent. It's not our favorite word in church, but it's a very helpful word, isn't it? To repent literally just means to change directions. And repentance, I would say, is a gift given to you by God. It is not something that's meant to heap shame or condemnation on your life. That's what the devil will try to do with the feeling of guilt. So you feel guilty in a moment. You do something wrong. You have guilt. The devil would love to keep you embedded in guilt in something called shame or condemnation. What the Holy Spirit's trying to do when you experience the emotion of guilt is he's trying to convict you, not the same as condemnation. He's trying to convict you. Convicting you is leading you into a different direction, inviting you into repentance. And so repentance is not some evil word spoken by some mean preacher somewhere. Repentance is a gift from a loving father. That says you are heading this way and it's going to lead you to destruction. But I would love to invite you this way because it's going to lead you into everlasting life. And so, the invitation if you find yourself dreaming more about your own selfishness, dreaming about your own situation, caught up more in consumeristic things rather than being caught up in kingdom thought, the first thing you can do is repent. God, I'm sorry. I think I've fallen more in love with mammon. I've fallen in more, more in love with stuff. I've fallen more in love with money than I've been focused on you. And so help, God, help lead me away from this in a different direction. That's the first thing you can do. And, and the reason that's a gift, let me convince you of it even more if you're not convinced already, is because if you were honest, if you were able to actually be honest with yourself, you don't just shop because you need things. You shop because there's something broken in your heart. You're not just on Amazon getting another thing in two days because you need that thing. If you were to really drive deep down into your behavior, and I'm no psychologist. I have my degree in in PE, Okay, That's what I'm doing. (laughs) But that couple laps you took around Target probably has less to do with you just wanting to go have a nice Friday morning. And it probably has more to do with something that's broken inside of you that you've been convinced by the world we're living in that you're insufficient, that you're not good enough, that you're not valuable enough that your life's not worth enough because you're not where you thought you would be. And so that invitation to repent is not just an an invitation away from a certain kind of lifestyle. It's God reminding you, no, I didn't create you for that. I created you for something better. I created you for something greater. You are sufficient in Christ. You are valuable to me. Do you see the difference there? And so the invitation off the train that we find ourselves on is the gift of repentance— The second thing I think we can do to put legs on this journey that we want to walk in following after the kingdom of God is we gotta gotta choose moments of generosity. We gotta choose moments of generosity. I talked about tithes and offerings last week. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about today. I think you can make conscious decisions throughout your week to be a generous person. There's a there's a quote, and I wish I would have grabbed who it was from. I can't remember who it's from, but it, it simply states that every time I give money away. I declare that money is not a deity of mine. Isn't that powerful? Every time I give money away, I'm making the declaration that this does not get my worship. This does not get my affection. And you just let it go. And as you let money go, you let go of its power that it has over you. Money is trying to grasp more and more and more of your life. But if you choose to let it go, its its fangs will come out of your skin. And so how how do you choose random generosity? Man, you you know, like Sunday afternoons, the joke for the waiters and waitresses in this town are that Christians are unbelievably cheap. You know, one really fun way, really easy way to just bless the socks off somebody is just leave a ridiculous tip. Well, I'm talking like 50% of your total bill. Maybe it's 30 bucks. You've got 30 bucks. And if you don't have 30 bucks, you shouldn't be eating out. You should be on beans and rice, rice and beans like Dave Ramsey's got to tell you about. You know what I'm saying? But if you find yourself at a restaurant, man, one of the best ways for you just to totally bless somebody is to leave a crazy tip, and then that crazy tip is all of a sudden tied to the crazy people who are just praying before their meal, and now all of a sudden they're going, wait a second, these people are crazy generous. That might might lead to some questions. Maybe you just leave unmarked envelopes in people's hand. Sometimes it is better to give anonymously where people have no idea where it's coming from. In fact, Jesus says this. If you give in secret, God's going to reward you in heaven. But if you give in a way where you say, hey, just so everyone knows, here you go, giving my gift right here, then people are going to go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. They're generous. God's like, that is generous. And that's good. And it's, it's not wrong. You're just getting all the reward that you're ever going to get for that right now. You're using it up in this moment. And so, it's like I, like, I don't know about you guys. I'm trying to just bank rewards up in heaven. Uh, maybe even that's some selfishness in my own heart. You know what I'm saying? I'm like they're probably going to be more awesome in heaven than anyone's applause here on earth. I I think, and so man, you give somebody an unmarked envelope, you say, hey, somebody wanted me to give this to you. Lo and behold, you were maybe that somebody, but you're just choosing to do it anonymously. I don't know what it looks like. Maybe you show up with a meal at somebody's house. Maybe like like Katie said in week two, you take care of somebody's kids. Maybe it's not always monetary, but we look for these random moments to give and to be generous. I I just would venture to guess in the world we're living in today moments of intentional generosity are going to be one of the best ways that we can provoke questions whereby the gospel is the only answer. Here's what I mean by that. You choosing to do random, generous things for random people, it's going to evoke questions out of people. We live in a world today that is so selfish, so self-seeking. It's so normal for you to be caught in the American consumer world that we're all living in. And so when someone breaks out of that and they make a crazy, generous Gesture towards another person, that evokes questions in a way that other things do not. And as that question comes up, you want to generate questions in your life where the only possible answer to that question is Jesus. So here's why we say at our church that generosity is our response. That's one of our distinct values here as a church. Generosity is our response. It's not some emotion that we try to that we try to muster up out of nowhere. We wouldn't even say that we're participating in charity. No, what we want to say is that God has been so crazy generous to me. And that's why I'm being generous to you. So that ultimately, any act of my generosity doesn't bring attention back to me necessarily. When I say generosity is my response, someone's like, oh my gosh, you're so generous. And I'm like, you, you should meet Jesus. He's been incredibly generous to me. He's poured out his love. He's poured out his grace. He's poured out in my life resource-wise. Like He has been so crazy generous to me. And now it's just a simple response. I just go, so of course, that's what I'm going to try to demonstrate to the world around me. Generosity is a response. Choosing moments of generosity like that, it's so intentional, it's so powerful, and we live in a world that is in desperate need of a powerful church. I don't know if you've looked up recently, but like the darkness seems to be getting darker. The hurt seems to be getting more painful. The desperation seems to be getting thicker out there the amount of kids that are just living in anxiousness and anxiety all the time right now, the amount of older people that are suffering with loneliness all the time right now, the amount of homelessness in our very own city, the poor and the impoverished of our city, are, they're not making any headway. And, and that is the moment that the world is in desperate need for a powerful church. But I'll tell you this right now, you just coming and attending a church is not going to make us a powerful church. And so I, I believe everything that Caden just said when he was hosting up here, That at at some point, we would love for you to say, I want to be a part of this family. And whether you take the official membership step class and join membership officially or not, that's that's not what's of importance to me. What's of importance to me, just so you can hear it from me, is that you would just engage and commit commit yourself to a local church somewhere. And in, in every healthy household, I would say, guests are coming over from time to time. And so if you're a guest here, please be welcome. You are absolutely a guest here. Take your time. I'm not even giving you a timeline of when you have to commit, but at some point you need to make the move in your life to being a attender and a guest in a church home, to being part of a church family. That is God's plan for your life. And maybe it's here, maybe it's somewhere else. I don't know, but I would love to invite you to be a part of the family because that's where you're going to flourish and that's where you're going to belong. And, and if we have a church full of family members rather than people who just visit and attend, then the church can be a powerful witness to the world around us. So the third thing that we need, the third piece, and this one's a little bit different, but I think if we are going to walk in the right direction, focusing on the kingdom, stay focused on the kingdom, what you're ultimately going to need, probably more significantly than even those other two things, is you're going to need a expanded vision for your life. I've been so struck over the last year, probably with the, with the story, the parable of the talents that Jesus teaches. And so if you're not familiar with this story, the story, it goes something like this. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But there's a master who's well off. He's a businessman of some kind. And he entrusts to some of his servants uh, money, talents, or, or resource, okay? He gives them a sum of money. And to one, he gives five. And to another, he gives three. And to another, he gives one. and And then he goes on this long, faraway journey. Like picture the Star Wars words coming across the screen, right? A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's what's going on. This, this guy goes off, and then he comes back, and he comes to inventory and asks the people for his money. Hey, I, I gave you as a steward of my money, I gave you some money, where is it? And he goes to the person who had five, and he said, I, I put this to work, here's your five, and I've, I've used it, I've worked it, and now here's five more. He gives him back ten. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Then he goes to the one who he gave three. The one who had three didn't respond by going like, I only got three. He got five. This isn't fair. What the heck? What's going on? No, no. He said, I took your three. I put it to work. Here's your original three. And now here's three more. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. He goes to the one who he entrusted with one. And in Matthew chapter 25, it says this. He also, who had received the one talent or the smallest portion of resources, the smallest portion of money, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, he's speaking to his business acumen there, and gathering where you scattered no seed. He says, so I was afraid, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And I, I remember first reading this and I was like, you know what, at least the guy gave back the one talent. Sometimes I misplace stuff, man. I feel like I'd be the guy that's not in this story who's like, God gave me two talents, you know, and I buried him and I'm like, I dug that hole somewhere, dude. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't even know where that went, you know? <laughs> but like at least this servant brought back the one talent. He's like, here, I'm returning to you what is yours. But that's not the master's answer. The master answered him and said, you wicked and slothful servant. What's the point of what he's saying there? You didn't do anything with what I entrusted to you. He says, You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. What's the master saying there? You could have at least just entrusted it somewhere, and it would have at least yielded something, but instead you did nothing with it. And where did it all come from? It all stemmed from this servant with the one talent having a misunderstanding of the nature of the master. And I got to believe that in a room like this, there's some of us, we have a misunderstanding of who God is as our master. And you have this misunderstanding of his character. And you think he's just up there watching for you to do something. He's just waiting for you to get involved. And you're maybe even like, you're afraid of him in an unhealthy way. I don't want to be careful because Solomon does also say the fear of the Lord as in a, a, a reverence for him, a respect towards him. That is actually the beginning of wisdom. And golly, that is playing itself in nice colors in our world today, isn't it? But the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, but an unhealthy fear of God where you don't believe that he's actually for you. You don't actually think that he's with you. You don't actually believe that he's gifted you supernaturally for the, for the day that you live in today. He, he has. He's for you. He's with you. Can I, can I remind you of a few things this morning, church? Like your spiritual account was so far in the red that you could have never paid it back the sins that you've committed, the mistakes that you've made. Some of you know it full well. Others of you need to be reminded from time to time that you're not perfect. But according to Jesus, you actually are. He, he, he didn't just pay your spiritual debt and wipe you back to zero. He actually credited to you his righteousness. So now that when God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ on your life. If you've come to him in faith, you're not, you're not just forgiven. You're actually adopted into his family as one of the very own sons of the household. A daughter of the household. He says, you belong to me. I I love you. I care for you that much that you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. He hasn't just just given you just enough of his grace to make it through the rest of the day. He says, no, you are more than a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. Oh, by the way, the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead now takes up residence in your body. That's hard to believe, isn't it? And let me tell you this, all that stuff is true. And it's not true so that you can live out the American dream. You were made for more than that. You need a broader vision for your life. You were made to be loved by God, reconciled to Him, filled with His Holy Spirit so that you might make an impact in the world you're living in today. You have the distinct ability to push back darkness in the world that you see today. You can make that difference. That's not just up to me. That's not just up to us, you individually, your family, your place of work, wherever you go from here today. You are an ambassador for the kingdom of God to push back that which is broken, lost, and hurting in this world. And you do it through His love, by just responding to who He's been to you, and you demonstrate His forgiveness. You demonstrate His generosity. You demonstrate His care and His compassion, His love to the world around you. And you have become an agent for that very same reconciliation. Can we all stand? As I'm dismissing us, I was reading through the story of Solomon, building the temple. You know, he builds this amazing, beautiful temple, and he dedicates it right before the presence of God fills the temple. He has this kind of prayer of committal, and it's this benediction that he has. That I Really, there's three pieces in it that I think are critical, even for us today. The first thing that he says is, God, would you be with us? God, would you be with us? Be with us as a nation. And I want to say, would you be with us? How many of y'all know God is not just limited to meeting with us on a Sunday morning? I hope you know that. He is with you all week as we get ready to walk out of these doors. The other thing that he says is, God, would you conform my heart to yours? Conform me to you, God. There's so much of that happening in the reverse in today's world that we're living in, where we try to make God more like us, but rather we want to make a prayer that says, no, God, I want to be more like you. And the third, third thing that he says is, With the things that I do and the way that I behave, would I bring glory to who you are, God? Ultimately, we don't do any of this because we want attention for ourselves, right? Like we, we want to make Jesus known in the world that we're living in today. And so if you're willing, would you just kind of open your hands up? I just want to pray a simple benediction over us today. We just say, God, we need you with us. Every day, God. God, maybe we've gotten good at asking you to convict us of our sin, but maybe today we needed to be reminded that there needs to be some conviction in how we're dreaming. God, would you be with us? Would you be faithful to us to continue to show us the ways that we're off and the ways that we're on the path, God, and keep leading us in the way everlasting? God, I pray that you would conform us to your image, God. Would we be soft clay in your hands? Mold us and make us into anything that you want us to be, God. And would ultimately, would our whole life be aimed at glorifying you while we enjoy you, God? Would we delight in you, glorify you, make much of your name, Jesus, in this world that we're living in today? It's an honor and a privilege to worship you, and we love you. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.